Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hello, and welcome to the Rachman Review. I'm Gideon Rachman, Chief Foreign Affairs Commentator of the Financial Times. This week's podcast is about Turkey. President Recep Tayyip Erdogan has now been in power for 20 years, and he has every intention of carrying on. But the Turkish leader faces a presidential election next month, and it's looking close. My guest this week is Sona Chaptai of the Washington Institute of Near East Policy, and author of a recent book, about Turkey's president called A Sultan in Autumn. So, could the Erdogan era be coming to a close? President Erdogan's always been famous for his oratory. That was him addressing a crowd recently and assuring them that the whole Islamic world will be watching the country's presidential and parliamentary elections on May the 14th. But the election takes place against a background of rampant inflation and of a recent natural disaster. Devastating earthquake in Turkey and Syria. It struck before dawn and collapsed buildings while people were asleep in their beds. And just moments ago... We just got word of a powerful 7.5 magnitude aftershock there. You can see people digging through the rubble. Opinion polls suggest that this election could be very close. But after so many years in office, many experts on Turkey find it hard to believe that Erdogan would ever accept defeat. So when I met Sona Chaptai in Washington last week, I started by asking him to explain why he believes these elections represent a historic turning point for Turkey. They are historic because in the context of Turkish politics, either Erdogan will lose and two decades of rule by President Erdogan will come to an end, or he'll win and stay in power so long as he's alive. He has consolidated so much power in the last decade and a half. So many institutions have fallen under his rule and many others are about to fall under his rule that I think if Erdogan won, it'd be fair to say that he will, he will completely consolidate power. Uh, whatever institutions are remaining independent will fall under him. And these will be Turkey's last free and fair elections while he's on the scene. He has term limits, uh, but he has previously shown to us that he can rebrand his job. He'll probably uh, rebrand his job once again, allow himself indefinite number of terms. So he'll be Turkey's sultan forever. Mm-hmm. If he loses, that's very significant also. Two decades of Erdogan rule will come to an end. Turkey will revert back to democracy. The new government will release political prisoners, including jail politicians and philanthropists. It will reestablish the new government, that is, freedoms of assembly, access to these freedoms, such as assembly, expression, and media. Turkey will reset ties with Europe and U.S. Investment environment will improve. Markets will rally. The lira will stabilize. So Turkey will go in two very different directions if Erdogan loses or he wins. Globally, the significance of the elections is that 
Erdogan is among the inventors of nativist populist politics in the 21st century, together with Hungarian Prime Minister Orban. Since effective leaders elsewhere have copied this model, you know, from uh, Trump and Modi to Bolsonaro. Uh, but what makes Erdogan and also Orban unique is that these two leaders have never been voted out. So if Erdogan lost, I think the whole world can take a deep breath that this is the bookend of nativist populist politics globally. Well, so the stakes are very high, but you said, you know, this could be the last free and fair election. Some skeptics or pessimists would say, well, you sure this, even this one will be free and fair? I mean, because Erdogan has done quite a lot to erode democracy. Do you think the elections will be uh, will be straight? And and if they are, and he loses, do you think he'll even respect them? So first of all, I don't think the elections are going to be fair. Elections have not been fair in Turkey for a long time, perhaps since the 2018 switch by Erdogan to an executive-style presidential system. But the race is still uh, free. The vote will be free. And, um, you know, I've seen people saying that that the results will be rigged. I don't think that you can really rig elections in Turkey. Turkey has a really high turnout rate, 85 to 90 percent. Wow, that's hard. And Turks love to vote. There's also a tradition of people showing up at the ballot stations after the voting is done to observe the counting. People take pictures of it. Um... So they're not going to turn up with a whole bunch of ballots, you know, stuff uh, that they filled in earlier and add them to the pile? Or... Not unless if the margin is really narrow, mm-hmm. uh, 1% or less, or a couple of seats for the parliament, in which case I can see Erdogan pulling at Trump. His advisors, in fact, have convinced him to do this once before. When his candidate lost the uh, race for Istanbul's mayor in 2019, the margin was really narrow, 13,000 votes. His advisors convinced him, said, hey, boss, you know, we control the institutions and the media electoral body, which is supposed to be independent, is all under our thumb. And Erdogan repeated the elections. But what happened was, I think, is what I call democratic resilience. In the first round, his candidate lost the race for Istanbul's mayor by a narrow margin of 13,000 votes. The second round, the same candidate lost it by a nearly 1 million vote margin. That's basically people who, are, who have voted for Erdogan saying, I don't like this. If Erdogan has drawn any lessons from Istanbul 2019, he should not pull a Trump. But if he's tempted to do so... Uh, he will believe that because of his control of institutions, he can get to a finishing point. So I think elections in Turkey have not been fair for about half a decade, but they're still free. And I think that uh, what will happen in Turkey in May is going to be another free vote. Whether or not Erdogan accepts the outcome, of course, that's opening a can of worms that have never been opened up in Turkey before. Yeah, but as you say, there are all these precedents. Trump attempted to overturn the election. Bolsonaro's followers certainly, uh, you know, stormed Congress in Brazil. And if anything, it seems to me democratic erosion has gone further in Turkey than it had in the United States or in Brazil. So, and Erdogan certainly doesn't seem a more moderate character than Trump. So you're so sure that that if he loses by 5%, clearly, that he won't try and do something, anything? I mean, he... He called a state of emergency, didn't he, after the attempted coup in 2016? I am pretty certain that if the margin uh, victory for the opposition for the presidency, let's say, is around five points, Erdogan will have to accept the outcome. Or that the opposition is uh, taking over the parliament in a landslide, he will. I think that at that stage, the opposition has probably done some thinking that in order to avoid a scenario of Erdogan pulling at Trump, opposition is probably going to go to amnesty to Erdogan with an offer uh, to provide him his family members, and key people in his administration with an amnesty offer that they won't be prosecuted against. So it's kind of like the transition in Chile after Pinochet. Not that Erdogan is Pinochet, but basically going to him and saying, you know, don't worry about it, leave power, let's have transition. The army, where would they stand? Uh, the army in Turkey is democratic with a lowercase d. It's conscript-based. 
there's no way it's going to shoot us, its own people. So I think the army will stay out of it. The police is politicized because it's under the interior minister, which reports to Erdogan. The police is a national force. But I, I think that the police will also stay out of this. Uh, if the if the margin is really a big and wide one. But that's a big if. So what's what's it looking like right now? The, right now, the race looks very competitive for the presidency. Kılıçdaroğlu is leading Erdogan by only a few points. Uh, that could narrow down. Um, there are so many uh, white swans or black swans going forward, one of which is Putin. He wants Erdogan to win. Um, Putin doesn't want to see a pro-transatlantic uh, government in Ankara in place. Um, he's already helped Erdogan last year by transferring large sums of money to Turkey. Those funds that came and helped stabilize the economy and Erdogan has picked up uh, favorability since. Putin could also engage in information operations to uh, create fake news, to undermine the opposition, or to boost third poll candidates. So one of the ways we can tell that democracy in Turkey is eroded more than in any other country that has fallen under a similarly populist leader is that there are fewer checks and balances that remain in Turkey and there are few independent institutions. For example, a national electoral board, supposed to be an independent monitoring body, listens to Erdogan, takes cues from him. In 2019, when Erdogan's candidate lost the elections for Istanbul's mayor, uh, the board stayed mum for five weeks until Erdogan claimed there was rigging. The next day, the board said, ah, yes, we found some rigging. So clearly, institutions are aligned in his favor. He controls 90% of the media. That's very significant in a country where 80% of citizens cannot read a foreign language. So that means Erdogan can create a post-truth narrative, and that narrative is already doing it. It's he's basically running a campaign on uh, the platform that you know he's found big amounts of natural gas in the Black Sea. He's built Turkey's first aircraft carrier, and that he's going to make Turkey a nuclear power. On April 27th, Putin is going to join Erdogan in a virtual ceremony where they're going to bring online this power station called Akkuyu in southern Turkey, built by Russia's Rosatom. So I think Erdogan's messaging is that. He's making Turkey great again. That's why the electorate should vote for him. And the media that he controls is editing out any kind of stories of hyperinflation, uh, democratic crackdowns, dissidents in jail. So if he wins, this will be the first win globally by a leader who has won on a post-truth platform. Because what you're suggesting is that the reality uh, should kind of do for most elected presidents because... (laughs) The economy is in very bad shape. The earthquake was was badly mishandled and so on. But let's talk about the economy first, because yep. I guess that is probably his Achilles heel. Absolutely. How bad is it? Uh, it is his Achilles heel, and it's really bad. Erdogan has never won national elections while not delivering growth. And I believe that as a leader, he's Janice faced. You know, he's got a bright side. You have to give it to him. He delivered really phenomenal growth in the context of Turkish history, uh, unbroken era of 15 years of growth. That's a record in Turkey's modern history. It also t- took place at a time when Turkey's neighbors were collapsing economically. Eurozone crisis, Greece and other countries next door. And that helped him build a base of adoring supporters, many of whom he has lifted out of poverty. The base likes him also, however, because he's also a nativist populist leader. And that's Erdogan's other side as a Janice-faced politician, his dark or illiberal side. He demonizes, brutalizes, and cracks down on demographics unlikely to vote for him. Those demographics include groups targeted by Erdogan, uh, leftists, uh, Kurdish nationalists, Alevis who are liberal Muslims, they are to Islam, but the Unitarian churches to Christianity. They're about 15, 20% of Turkey, perhaps. Uh, Social Democrats, liberals, uh, and various other groups. All these groups targeted by Erdogan make up about half of Turkey's population. 
And his base, constituted by mostly conservatives, made up the other half. And Erdogan won elections because the opposition was divided and he had a base that solidified around him. Now he's got twin problems. One, the economy is not doing well. Turkey suffered through hyperinflation until recently, maybe at triple digits. Inflation has come down a little bit. The lira lost 450% of its value in the last five years alone. So people must be suffering. And post-earthquake relief was lackluster. Uh, it looks like there was a lot of corruption that resulted in at least some of these casualties. Look at buildings of Antakya in southern Turkey. There's a building standing. There's a building next to it that is pancaked. That's not the earthquake. That's corruption. There was either corruption at local level or at even more massive scale allowed and permitted by the government. That was never discussed after the earthquake, nor was there any discussion of how lackluster the government agencies were in, uh, in the sense that they failed to deliver aid. The earthquake is probably one of the biggest disasters to hit Turkey. Perhaps no government could have completely handled a well-coordinated relief effort afterwards. The area impacted is the size of the U.S. state of Ohio. Uh, thousands of people died, but also many died, I think, while they were waiting under the rubble in freezing temperatures uh, for aid that never came. Because Erdogan, as a typical nativist populist leader does, has gutted out Turkey's institutions. Instead of these institutions being run by able uh, bureaucrats, they're run by Erdogan loyalists, whose only cre credibility is that they're loyal to the president. So the relief agency that's supposed to bring earthquake uh, relief to the victims, uh, the equivalent of Turkey's FEMA, for example, is run by a theologian who is not an engineer, he's not a relief or rescue engineer. And um, sadly, therefore, these agencies were nowhere to be seen after the earthquake. Instead, the government decided to go for a narrative of this earthquake of the century. This was force majeure. Nobody could have done anything. Every government network ran uh, footage of how the fault line cut through railways, shifted them three feet to the right, 10 feet to the left, or uh, by meters. And so I think the conclusion that was drawn for the electorate was Erdogan did his best, but this was God interfering. Um, we'll see if in the election, uh, once the vote is completed, whether this post-truth narrative of I'm a successful leader, I did my best after the earthquake, I did not fail. I'm also a good leader uh, because I'm going to make Turkey great again. Never mind hyperinflation, lira tumbling, uh, dissidents in jail, lack of democratic freedoms. We'll see if that succeeds or if there's going to be a blue wave. You know, uh, citizens who are sick and tired of the media telling them, a virtual reality based on lies, not reflecting what's actually happening in the country. I think that the biggest pushback regarding a blue wave could come from younger voters, those who are under 30. They're Turkey's Gen Z voters. Um, economy is hitting them especially hard because they have only seen prosperity in Turkey, unlike their parents or older people. You have nearly 12 million voters between the ages of 18 and, and 30 who are experiencing their first economic crisis. So Economy is Erdogan's Achilles heel. He is, as I understand it, I mean, to some extent, to blame because he has very weird economic theories, for example, that uh, raising interest rates increases inflation. Right. So basically, if you studied uh, Econ 101 in college, you would disagree with Erdogan's uh, suggestions that, you know, if you keep interest rates low, inflation will come down. He believes that interest rates drive inflation, not the other way around. And I also think that the economy has been in troubles, um, not surprisingly, since Erdogan's switch to the executive-style presidential system in 2018. That switch was supposed to make him more powerful. It did. Now he's simultaneously head of state, head of government, head of ruling party, head of the police, which is a national force, head of the military as commander-in-chief. So he's Turkey's new sultan. He's become really powerful. 
But uh, I think uh, the shift has also worked decision-making. You know, Turkey has, uh, from the high school I went to, to its general accounting office institutions, all of which are 200 years old, it does have this myth of virgin birth that Ataturk invented and created modern Turkey out of nothing, ether 100 years ago. That's not true. All of Turkey's institutions are 200 years old. It's why the country works. Erdogan has done away with these institutions. He has either eliminated them or turned them into zombie institutions when they did not fall under him. That applies to relief agencies that did not deliver aid after the earthquake, but that also applies to uh, other institutions of government, uh, from the treasury to central bank, that were supposed to make sound decisions. They don't anymore. That's because they're all driven by Erdogan's unorthodox views of how to run an economy. I think this is his uh, biggest mistake domestically to switch the presidential system because it not only warped decision-making, but also uh, unified his opposition. Prior to the switch, Turkey had a parliamentary democratic system, so it was a multi-party race for the parliament. Erdogan's party never had a majority of votes, but it always had a plurality of the votes. And because it was a six-way race, uh, as it happens in most European democracies with multi-party race, Germany being an example, the largest party gets to form the government. In this uh, race, Erdogan always won because the gap between opposition groups, uh, including Turkish and Kurdish nationalists, seculars and conservatives and liberals, center-right and center-left, was always wider than the gap between them and Erdogan. But it was a cardinal error for Erdogan to switch to executive-style presidential system because this system requires a two-way race. So the opposition parties realized in 2018 that they have to unite. Otherwise, they'll never win. They put aside their differences. They fielded a joint candidate. It almost worked. I say almost because at the time, the economy was still doing okay. Turkey's economy was still prospering. Since the economy has entered a recession, experienced hyperinflation, and the opposition stays unified. And he's going to try to win the elections now, first time nationally, while not delivering growth. So that means Erdogan's dark side will surface. And is that already happening? Can you see that in the campaign? What are you seeing signs of that? He started to label opposition leaders and those who vote for the opposition as terrorists, perverts, usurers. And I think we're going to see more of this coming up, going down. He is uh, the master of this kind of politics, both in Turkey, but also globally. And I think there's nothing Erdogan won't do to not win elections. He's uh, used foreign policy. He's reset ties with Gulf monarchies. And uh, they have invested money in Turkey, uh, both UAE and Saudi Arabia. Uh, Putin has also transferred funds to Turkey that helped the economy kind of stabilize. We'll talk about the opposition in a second. But just describe to me where you think Erdogan is himself in his conception of himself, his conception of Turkey. He's what, uh, almost 70 now, 69, is that right? Yep, uh, born in 1954. It's also the 100th anniversary of the foundation of the Turkish Republic. Um, And he seems to have this rivalry in his head with Ataturk, the great founder of the Republic. Does he want to kind of refound the Turkish Republic around his own vision? Oftentimes, I think that Erdogan is very similar to modern Turkey's founder, Mustafa Kemal Ataturk. Ataturk was a Jacobin leader who believed in top-down social engineering. Uh, Erdogan is very similar. He also believes in top-down social engineering, but Erdogan is an anti-Ataturk Ataturk because Erdogan does not share Ataturk's values. Ataturk's values were that he wanted Turkey to be European, secular, and pro-Western. Erdogan wants Turkey's citizens to be socially conservative, embracing Islam, and also politically rooted in the Middle East. I would say maybe Erdogan has had some success to this end. Maybe that has a lot to do with Turkey's identity. Uh, Maybe 
both Ataturk and Erdogan are extremists in the sense that they wanted to assign Turkey exclusive identities. I think Turkey is both European and Middle Eastern. Uh, perhaps it's neither European nor Middle Eastern, somewhere in the middle. But I think he does uh, see himself as a man on a mission. And unlike uh, populist politicians elsewhere who come from privileged backgrounds, Erdogan does come from the other side of the tracks. You know, he was born and raised in a poor working class neighborhood of Istanbul. When he grew up, uh, he not only felt othered because he came from the poor working class masses of Turkey, he also felt othered because he lived in a formerly secularist society that treated people like Erdogan and his parents who wanted to wear religion on their sleeve as second class citizens. So I think when he makes a case to connect with the common voter, part of it is genuine, but that's Erdogan 30 years ago. He's also the most powerful leader Turkey has probably seen since, since Ataturk. You know, he's simultaneously head of state, head of government, head of ruling party. People are afraid of him. But here's, I think, how he stays in power. The base loves him, still does. It's a shrinking base, but does love him. And his opponents hate him or fear him. So I think he stays in power through a mix, a cocktail of, of respect and fear. And perhaps no other leader in Turkey is able to provide that. And I think that's what makes Erdogan's brand so fascinating. Is, is he, do you think, a uh, politician is becoming increasingly paranoid the longer he's in power? I mean, one of the things about, you've compared him to these other strongman leaders, Putin, Orban, etc. They all see conspiracies everywhere, you know, at home, overseas. Erdogan was uh, one of the people who kind of pioneered the idea of the deep state and so on, which Trump has later picked up. Um, and a question I think often with these guys, as you watch them, and they all do seem to be guys at the moment, is do they believe all this stuff or are they just kind of using it to excite the base? It's difficult to know, but what's your assessment of Erdogan's psychology? In case of Erdogan, I think it's a bit of both. Uh, so he really does come from the other side of the tracks. He uh, represents a demographics in Turkey that didn't have access to the pie economically and politically for a long time. Never mind that since he has crossed to this side of the tracks, that he's wealthy, perhaps a billionaire, the most powerful elected leader, but he still carries a chip on his shoulder, perhaps. You know, he has a grudge against the elites who treated them as second class. And yes, he has, you know, defeated those elites. Uh, perhaps he feels like if he's ever let, if he ever lets loose, they will come back. And he fears that losing power would, of course, come with uh, retributions. So tell me about the opposition. I mean, you said they've all come together. That can be both a strength and a weakness because they must be, represent very, very different viewpoints. Yeah. And also about the candidate running against uh, Erdogan for the presidency, who seems to be rather a quiet sort of character, not a, um, another strongman, certainly. Yeah, so some people will consider Kılıçdaroğlu a Biden uh, in the Turkish context. You know, if Biden was kind of the leader uh, who was seen as the safest bet to defeat Trump in the United States. I actually think that there are a few things going for Kılıçdaroğlu. One is that he is refusing uh, to engage Erdogan in populist and demonizing rhetoric. He's actually done the opposite. Uh, he has reached out to constituencies uh, treated not so well by Turkey's republic in the 20th century, including conservative Muslims and Kurds. He's offered this concept called helalleşme. It's sort of like asking for someone's karmic forgiveness in Islam. He's saying, you know, I'm sorry for everything uh, my party, Republican People's Party, the party of Ataturk has done to you. Let's let's open a blank page and I, I, I ask for your forgiveness. But the big challenge for the opposition is going to be to stay united. You know, it is really constituted by disparate groups. Uh, the biggest uh, challenge is that opposition has a Turkish nationalist faction called E-Party. It's run by Meral Akşener. Uh, uh, her party is the second largest party in the opposition bloc. 
But the opposition bloc is supported also informally by a pro-Kurdish party called People's Democratic Party, HDP. So far, these two parties have remained in this kind of uh, difficult marriage. Uh, I think that, especially if the race goes for a runoff... To, to win outright in the first round, they have to get over 50%. Yeah. Yeah. And I think Erdogan's game plan is to deny the opposition a victory in the first round. To this end, he's boosting the presence of third poll candidates such as Muharrem Ince, who's a CHP defector. Uh, his social media presence far uh, outsizes uh, the financial holdings of his party. So it looks like somebody's opening them social media space. If it's not Putin, I think it's Erdogan, perhaps both. Um, and that's helping. I think Erdogan's game plan is to deny opposition an outright victory on May 14 and force the race into a runoff. Then we'll see Erdogan the demonizer and the brutalizer. You know, he's kind of coming out on full force. Even by the standards of how autocratic he has become, I think uh, events that transpire from uh, May 14 to 28 might shock us. Erdogan might come out with new allegations of the deep state that's about to conspire against him. It used to be so difficult for me to explain the concept of deep state to American audiences. People would say, what do you mean? Erdogan is democratically elected. He's a Democrat, respected, uh, even though he goes after his opponents saying that they're a deep state about to undermine him. Now, of course, following the rise of Trump, I think we're seeing that Turkey invented this kind of jargon and the rest of the world borrowed it. And finally, uh, give us a sense of, uh, you, you touched upon this earlier, but why this election matters to the outside world? Because I guess... Turkey's always been important in the EU uh, or its relationship with the EU. It's, as you say, also got a foot in the Middle East. Yeah. There's the migration issue. But again, the Ukraine war has, again, raised Erdogan's profile and, and perhaps given them added leverage on the world stage. It did. And, you know, Sweden's NATO accession, Turkey holds the, the golden vote to that. doesn't matter how you look at it. Turkey's neighborhood is, I think, what makes Turkey important to the United States and to NATO allies. Turkey borders Iran, Iraq, Syria, Russia across the Black Sea, and formerly ISIS-controlled territories. So whatever your policies are regarding these four countries and one entity, it's easier with Turkey on board. So I think everybody here in Washington and in all European and NATO member capitals are looking at the elections and holding their breath. But also globally, it's an important election because Turkey is the oldest democracy and simultaneously the biggest economy between Germany and India. And what happens in Turkey will resonate beyond the country's borders, at least immediately in this geography from Germany to India and even further, because I think the world will be watching. And it will be uh, significant because the race is competitive. This is the, uh, the most important challenge Erdogan faces in his 20-year career. He faces both a unified opposition and a bad state of the economy, uh, both of which are undermining uh, his popularity, eating into his base. Turkey's citizens have been voting in free and fair elections since 1950. So Turkey has had free and fair elections longer than uh, as Spain has. And on top of it, even for Erdogan's base, elections are a source of legitimacy. The campaign is not fair. It will become less fair as we go forward. The vote is going to be free. And I have ultimately a huge amount of confidence in Turkey's voters for a free vote. I think that we might be surprised whether it's a blue wave or uh, Gen Z voters deciding that they're done with Erdogan and they won't put up with him. So it will be definitely historic polls to watch for us globally. That was Sonna Chaptai of the Washington Institute of Near Eastern Studies, ending this edition of the Rachman Review. Thanks for listening, and please join me again next week.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.